0: the jericho network on westwood one the following program is presented by the jericho network in association with podcast one podcast one presents rock talk, rock talk with mitch LaFon. all the rockers all the stories this is incredible now now here's your host respected rock journalist mitch LaFon.
1: Another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch Fawn joining me this week from the band Quiet Riot, it is drummer Frank Benelli We talk about their new album, Road Rage, and all kinds of other wonderful stuff. But before that, we will continue our Guns N' Roses month here at Rock Talk. I have got former manager Alan Niven talking about appetite for destruction and all kinds of wonderful stuff. But uh, before we get to all that, uh, let's get to the Rock Talk section of the episode. Uh, we have got writer Art tavana who of course has written about everything guns and roses uh, most of it appearing in la weekly the last one was uh, and r legend tom zutat and a great great interview art by the way pleasure to have you here and that interview with tom fantastic thank you so much mitch and
0: by the way shout out to chris jericho who's one of my like childhood heroes i used to watch him on like monday nitro as a kid and He's a fucking legend, and I love him. So I'm just really excited to be on his network.
1: Yes, and, and Canadian, so you gotta you gotta love that as well. No, he's a, he's, he's you're gonna have to do a, a Fozzie feature for LA Weekly, I think. They they would never let
0: me, but I would love to if they would. And by the way, another shout out to Bret Hart. talking about Canadians.
1: Yes, absolutely. So so you know you have written extensively uh, about Guns N' Roses over the year about the reunion, Melissa Reese. Uh, you did an article, I believe, I guess, on Izzy. Where's Izzy? You got the Tom mm-hmm. one. Where, where's the fascination come in for you? Um,
0: fascination as a fan started on MTV in 1992 when I saw November Rain, and I was just fucking blown away. I mean, it was, to me as a kid, it was the epitome of what rock and roll was. It was epic. It was over the top. It was you know, Shakespearean. It was raw. It was sexy. It was unfiltered. It didn't apologize for the excess. And it's funny because I've gotten so much pushback over the years because my kind of perspective on GNR is the Use Your Illusion kind of era perspective where I liked the fact that they kind of went over the top and started playing stadiums and actually started getting behind the piano. So my fascination for me was always that. And then it kind of developed over the years as I became a music critic and I saw the indie kind of music explosion and this kind of pushback against things like sex and drugs and rock and roll and masculinity. And it kind of got very boring for me. All these like really... I'm not gonna even use the term because it's insulting, but I mean these kind of like bands who didn't have any balls, you know. And Guns N' Roses to me was the band that had what well, was one of the last bands that really stood up for rock and roll the way it's supposed to be, which is Angry Stop, Fun and Dangerous. And that was for me why I started writing about GNR because I thought it was rebellious to write about GNR. I mean, when I started writing about GNR, no editor would allow me to do it. Um, the perspective, at least in America on the West Coast, was and, and the East Coast was you know, why is this band relevant now? It's dad rock, it's outdated, it's old, it's angry, it's misogynistic. And for me, it was like, well, that's exactly why I want, why I want to write about this band. Um, those are all the reasons why I love this band. They're badass, they're ruthless, and they took no prisoners. And that was the fascination, really.
1: Yeah, and what what I find also amazing is the fact that they say, oh, it's dad rock. It's just that. How many dad rock bands are out there playing stadiums? And how many, you know, those bands are still doing what they're doing now? Are you surprised at this reunion tour has lasted so long because I have spoken to a lot of the players on the inside, you know, the Alan Nivens and the Steve Thomas, and they're all like, I give it five shows before it implodes. And we're, <laughs> we're, we're going on to two years, later on three years. I mean, it, it, there seems to be no end in sight. Are you amazed, fascinated, or just, hey, that's what I expected?
0: I'm absolutely shocked. I mean, when I was I was at the Troubadour, I was the only journalist at the Troubadour for the reunion show. And when Axel broke his ankle, I got a text message from a friend of mine who was backstage and said, Axel broke his foot, it's over. And I thought it was over. I thought that was it. I thought Axel broke his foot. They might do they might do another show. They might not. And that was the end. And the fact that it's carried on for this long and it's still going strong is shocking to me. But you know what? They're mature, you know, they're they're older now, they get it. Axel's, you know, kinda of put his demons to rest, I guess, at least a little bit. And it looks like what the most the most amazing thing about the tour or the reunion to me is slash. Because his playing, I mean, we talk to anybody, his playing has just become so much more intense. And he seems like he's kind of, he feels like he has to prove something, I think. I think because of maybe because of Buckethead or because of the fact that he hasn't been in GNR for so long, Slash is kind of the, the person who has the most to prove out there. And he's been ripping, absolutely ripping. I mean, I've never, every show, he just changes the riffs and does all this cool experimental shit. And it's fucking
1: awesome to see. Yeah, I agree. And, and my take on that is, uh, I don't know if he has anything to prove because he's slashed, but I think he's, when you take those Chinese democracy songs and he slashifies them, for the lack of a better word, I think he gets a <laughs> kick out of going, yeah, you know what? These songs aren't bad. They just were missing me. And, right? And, and they sound yeah, great. I, I mean, love it. You listen to This I Love and some of the other songs they've been doing, and you hear those slash solos on those parts, and you go... That song's not bad. What, what are we, what are people complaining about? These are fucking great songs. It just, it was missing that one key ingredient. You know, it's like when you make a soup and you don't put enough salt, right? And it's just like, ah, now we've got the salt. Um, Absolutely. Zutet, let's talk Zutet. Uh, I have tried sure. over the years to get an interview with Zutet, and it's not happening. He's very hard to reach, very hard to to get a hold of. And he also just doesn't Mm -hmm. want to do interviews. You got it done for LA Weekly. What was that experience like for you?
0: Man, I mean, it took me a year to get Tom to do the interview. It took a year of emailing him, messaging him, talking to him, and he kind of got to know me and read some of my stuff and understood what my goal was, which is to be the historian of this band. I don't care about the gossip. I don't care about the rumors. I don't give a shit about the, the shit people always spread on the Internet and the GNR forums. I just wanted to talk to him. And... Finally, he's like, "Come down to Virginia, come down to Central Virginia, come to my house. It's the only way I'll do it." And I was like, "Well, if that's the only way you'll do it, I'm booking my flight." So I booked a flight, went to Virginia. He lives in the middle of nowhere in the backwoods. Like, he's got this 200 acre, giant, 250 year old property with like a bunch of different ranch, like um, barns, and like it's just an endlessly large property. So getting to his actual house was like going through a small city. So I had to like drive through this like dark, woodsy area, like over a bridge, no idea where I was. My phone was dying. I had no service. The minute I see Tom, he came out, brought me in, exchanged very little words. We talked, like, for about 10 seconds. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming down. Takes me to his record room, which is just surrounded by vinyl and old kind of demo tapes and a lot of stuff I obviously can't talk about, but a ridiculously cool room for any GNR fan. And then he sits me down on his couch, puts on an Appetite for Destruction, an original Unopened vinyl robot rape cover, and I verified that it was real because I looked at all the markings and shit. Takes it out, puts it on this ridiculous hi fi stereo, and we just listened to the whole record back in front, and just no words were exchanged. We just sat there and listened to Appetite for Destruction. And let me tell you if anybody, if you can pull, pull this off, get an original copy, get it on a really cool hi fi system, a really good, really good speakers, and listen to that record, it's a fucking completely different experience. I've never. Wow. I, I, I My appreciation for the record completely was enhanced after that moment. And it was just, it was insane. And then we did an interview for about three or four hours. And I only, I only used about 25 minutes of the interview, to be honest with you.
1: Wow.
0: Um, because we, we just can't, I couldn't print all of it. It was impossible. And there's a lot of stuff that obviously I can't talk about and would never be able to talk about. But I'll just say this, like Tom Zutaut, man, that guy is, a, oh, there's so much, he, he has so much to give and so much to talk about. I think he will. I think eventually he'll write a book and it'll all get out there. But for right now, he's just not doing interviews. I was just looking up to talk. to him.
1: Wow, that's that's great. Now, do you, do you think at some point with all these contacts that you have that you might collate to this into some kind of book or some kind of something that we can get a hand, everything in one place? Yeah, I mean, a book
0: is happening for sure. I'm writing a book about Guns N' Roses. It's going to be a, an uncensored history. Um, my goal from the beginning was I read all these books by guys like Mick Wall and Stephen Davis and Danny Sugarman. and They all really sucked. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I'm not scared to say that. I think Mick Wall's book, everything is written about Jean is complete bullshit. I mean, this guy, let me just give one quick story before I, I end this. Um, Mick Wall wrote about the Troubadour show as if he was there. He wasn't. And then he broke, quote-unquote, broke the news of Adler injuring his back. The only person to have broken that news was me. I was there. I got the text message. Nobody even knew he had hurt his back before I knew he hurt his back. I reported on it. Mick Wall went on his blog, wrote about it as if he'd broken the news, didn't credit the weekly, didn't credit me, got all the credit. Now when you Google Stephen Adler's back, it's all these Mick Wall references. And then guess what? I went on Twitter and asked Mick Wall about it, and he blocked me on Twitter. He just blocked me, and that's the kind of guy, and this is the thing, you talk to anybody in the GNR universe, they, and they'll say, man, the GNR history is Rashomon, right? right. Alan Niven said that to me once, and it's it's very subjective, it's very hard to get a handle on, and my goal is to really kind of dig through all the bullshit, a fact check, and be kind of a historian, and Gonzo go, go on the road, go to Alan Niven, where he lives, go to Tom, where he lives, go to all the various characters, and... Get their story on the record before it's too fucking late, you know, because guys like Mick Wall are just sitting in their their like apartments or condos in England and stealing stuff from other reporters. I want to go into the fucking lion's den. I want to go to everyone's house. I want to go to their studios. I don't want to really kind of reveal the stuff that I haven't been able to talk about because of, you know, like you can't publish everything in the LA Weekly, you know? Yeah,
1: I can imagine. Now, of course, uh, just, just quickly from, from my, sh- my perspective and my show's perspective, I, I have no idea if, if Mick Wall does anything you've said there. So he's certainly invited <laughs> on to the uh, show to, uh, to clarify anything just because, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and then we'll finish with this. Uh, Axel Rose, ACDC, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up 100%. Man, He sounds great. And I think he's having so much more fun.
0: With AC/DC, it's my personal opinion because he gets to just kind of go out there and do his own thing and not think about it and unleash his voice without any sort of concerns about the fans or the nuances, of the people around him. He just goes out there and sings it like a monster. And he's way better than I, I'm not going to say that. I don't want to insult anybody, but to me, he's a fucking badass singer. I hope they do a record together.
1: So it's great. Well, you know, not only do I hope that they do a record together, but, you know, 10 new songs, whatever, whatever. I just wanna have like a double live album of all those classic A C D C songs with Axel's voice on it. That to me would be the ultimate oh, and I'm, yeah. I'm with you on the thumbs up. I think he's just nailing it. But he's also nailing it with Guns and Roses. I mean uh, I, I have never been an Axel hater over these years. You know, even in two thousand mm-hmm. and eight and two thousand I went to the shows, I saw them at the Metropolis in Montreal, which is a little club of two thousand people. It was just f- 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 phenomenal. I mean, you, the, the guy's always yeah. just been great. And, you know, some fans just sort of need to get over the fact that he was late at a show in 1992. I mean, you can <laughs> get over yourselves, you know. Uh, Axel's you, great. Slash <laughs> is great. Duff is great. They're all great. Leave me alone. <laughs> that's, that's how I look at well, it. The way
0: I look at it, I guess I'm a user illusion, fan. The way I look at it, thank God he was late. Thank God for the riot. Thank God for the crazy behavior and all the crazy shit he did. Because if it wasn't for that. All the theater, all the theatrics and high drama that, that kind of makes this band so interesting wouldn't wouldn't exist. I mean, yeah. Axl Rose's sort of bad qualities are what made this band so fucking exciting as a kind of a, a movie, a blockbuster film, as opposed to just a rock band.
1: Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I, I think had he not done that stuff, we might have lost the intrigue, like we might have lost that, well, is he going to show up tonight? And um, yeah. that, that's part of their culture. That is what they are. And, but you know what? That aside, this last couple of years, they've been on time every time, and it's just been phenomenal. I've seen a bunch of shows and just haven't been disappointed once. And even if it's the same set list, just the way it's put together and the different passages Slash is doing with his guitar, there's enough little variations just in that that it keeps it totally enthralling. So good for them. And Art, always a pleasure. Um, where can folks find you online, by the way? Uh, you can find me on twitter at art
0: tavana or tavana whichever way you want to pronounce it best way to find me is on twitter and then if you just google my name you'll see all the gnr stuff pop up and i'm on my gnr ranting all the time with the fans who you know are interesting or precious at times but it's really fun so just find me on my gnr again it's art tavana or tavana
1: tavana well we're canadians tavana tavana, tavana. <laughs> tomato, tomato, nuts. <No>. A. <laughs> A, 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 <laughs> A. but uh, great pleasure. And I will be right back with Alan Niven. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVaughn. Mitch LaVaughn. A big thank you to Art Tavana for that great discussion about all things Guns N' Roses. I do encourage you to check out all the articles he's written about the band. as he mentioned, just Google Art Tavana, T-A-V-A-N-A, and you will find all kinds of great stuff. Um, Speaking of great stuff, we are celebrating 30 years of Appetite for Destruction. The album came out in July of 1987. Last week, we spoke to the mixer, Steve Thompson, who, of course, also mixed Metallica's Injustice for All, worked on Tesla's... First album, Mechanical Resonance. As the producer, has done a whole bunch of other great stuff. So you know, go check out Steve's uh, discography. You'll be completely, completely amazed and blown away. But uh, this week, we are going to speak with um, original manager Alan Niven, and uh, just a great conversation with Alan. His his thoughts are always very lucid, very clear, very direct. You will get a kick out of his stories. So without further ado. Here is the one, the only, former manager for Guns N' Roses, Alan Niven. We are speaking with former Guns N' Roses manager, Alan Niven. Alan, always a great pleasure to talk to you. And as you know, we speak almost every day, so um, uh, don't think I'm not going to ask you the hard questions.
2: Uh, well, the hardest question of all is, uh, are the Habs ever going to have a ice hockey team that's going to threaten the dominance of American ice hockey teams? And our possession of the Stanley Cup.
1: No, at, at this point, there is no Canadian team prepared to, to win a Stanley Cup, though unfortunately, the Toronto Maple Leafs seem to be positioning themselves better than any other Canadian team to, to have a chance in the next five years, which breaks my heart immensely. But
2: As much as this might shock you, I am going to suggest that you might be pleasantly surprised at how far a Canadian team will go this year. I think this year we're going to see a Canadian team um, maybe even get to the final.
1: <laughs> you mean get past the first round. But we are here for Appetite for Destruction, the 30th anniversary, which of course means we are both getting very, very old, which is <laughs> terrible. <but laughs> uh,
2: well, absolutely. I mean, I think you and I both thought that getting old would take a little longer Uh, And it is mildly shocking to think of it as 30 30 years have passed since the release of the record. Uh, And it's mildly shocking to me that I've just sent celebrations to um, Curly to Slash um, for his 52nd birthday. And when I first laid eyes on him, he was merely 19. Um, Where does the time go?
1: Yeah, I know it goes too fast, but I think that, that it does underline though something very important is the fact that this album has maintained a fan base, has maintained interest and has stayed relevant uh, for so long. So, so let's start there. Why has these songs, this collection of songs stayed relevant for so long?
2: I think there are a number of factors involved though, Mitch. I think one factor is the lack of the emergence of a truly great rock and roll band since 1990. Um, I know again, this is probably going to upset people, but uh, the grunge era out of Seattle didn't bring an awful lot of joy. It seemed to be soaked in misery from my Limited sense of perspective, Um, not much to celebrate in that form of music, and there's been no great rock and roll band to come out since. So that's one factor. Um, Another factor is that it's 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 a genuinely good rock and roll record. Um, I still play and adore the first Led Zeppelin record, uh, which to me has a sense of vitality that is timeless and part of the success of, uh, of appetite is the fact that it, it had an authenticity to it. It had a vitality to it. And I, th- I think all those factors
1: play in there. It really does. So, uh, talk to me about your involvement. When, when did, um, you get wind of these first demos and start thinking, okay, uh, I want to work with this band. There's something here that's interesting to me.
2: Well, first of all, I didn't want to work with the band because I was very focused on uh, another circumstance, and I didn't want to split my energies and compromise both entities with a um, with having to, having to put energy into two different entities. Um, I first got a hold of demos of the band in the summer of 86 and they came from Tom Zoot out at Geffen and you could tell that there was a very punkish energy there Um, there was nothing to to suggest that it would, uh, this band would translate well into the contemporary radio world at that time which was very much ruled by the feel and sound of say Bad Company Um, the songs there were some really good songs there. For me, it was the personalities that got me interested more than the demos. It was the characteristics of Slash and Izzy and Axel.
1: You've often said that Izzy's the heart and soul of the band.
2: Uh, I excuse, oh, Hold on, hold on. Um, excuse me for interrupting. I've never said that. What I always say is heart of the soul. Okay. Not heart and soul. It's an important distinction to me, but he is the heart of the soul of the band.
1: Okay. And what is it that he brought to Appetite for Destruction that made him uh, the heart or made him so unique?
2: The simplistic way to say it is if Guns N' Roses were cool, then Izzy was the Freon. And what I loved about Izzy was that he had uh, an insouciance that informed the syncopation of his rhythm playing. He had a street vernacular in his lyric writing that was unimpeachable. And for me, as a rock and roller, he was entirely authentic.
1: He really was. Um, There are out there demos of Mr. Brownstone and a couple of other songs that you did with uh, Michael Lardy of Great White. Um, Talk to me about those demos and what's the story behind them?
2: Well, it's, it's not a demo. The uh, original mix of Brownstone uh, was done by Michael and myself, and the story there was that uh, Mike Klink had spent two weeks trying to get a mix to zoot out at Geffen and had not been able to deliver anything, and the poor guy was absolutely exhausted. By this time. And I got a phone call from Tom uh, who was concerned that maybe Klink hadn't been able to catch anything worthwhile on tape. And I was in the middle of uh, another production and I just said to Tom, look, just go down to Rumbo, pick a roll of tape, send it down to the studio we're working in, and we'll take a look at it. And uh, this box arrived, and Michael and I were in the middle of doing overdubs on an album called Once Bitten and we stopped what we were doing we stripped the board we set for a mix and we did the, a real quick mix of brownstone in about four hours and the band were waking up in tom's office for word and i just called and said i think you'd better come down here and then just put the phone down um, kind of leaving them in suspense and it was uh, actually only izzy came down, he was the only one with the, who had the nerve to come down at that point and by the time when we did playback of the mix, by the time we got to the chorus, Izzy was just flying out of the sofa behind us like a, uh, an ICB you know, a, a NASA rocket pumping his fists in the air, because Mike had got it on tape, he'd, he'd done a brilliant job of recording the band and it was there, it was just Mike was um, really exhausted at that point and hence the first mix of appetite was actually brownstone and it was actually the one that Michael and I did and it ended up being used by Geffen on a lot of b- sides of singles um, all across Europe so you know if you go if you go looking at vinyl stores or flea markets you might be able to find a, a, a six inch a seven inch vinyl or a 12 inch vinyl that'll have that on it
1: the band had gone through a lot of different producers before choosing Mike Clink. They had considered Manny Charlton, they had considered Spencer Proffer, uh, Paul Stanley of KISS. Um, were you involved at all in the choosing of a producer?
2: Uh, yes. Um, obviously, I was uh, very interested to know what Tom was thinking. Um, I, uh, when I first signed on, they were actually recording at Pasha and my understanding at the time was that um spencer proffer was was lined up to do the record and uh, personally i was a little dubious about that Um, i asked to uh, meet with spencer and uh, apparently i was not of sufficient significance in those days for him to give me his time so i met with his assistant which made me even more dubious. So one of the first things I did was suggest that maybe we should keep looking. And Tom came up with the idea of, of uh, Mike Klink. And given that Mike uh, had worked with Ron Neverson, and given that Mike had worked with Michael Schenker, I knew that he was, one, an extremely good guitar engineer and very good at working guitar um, And secondly, having worked with uh, Michael Schenker, I knew he was capable of dealing with the difficult. So in my mind, he was qualified. The other thing about Mike was um, he is a really naturally humble guy. Um, He doesn't project a super huge ego. And that was a quality that both Tom and I admired in him in this circumstance because if we'd had a a Roy Thomas Baker-type ego, uh, I know that we would have had conflict between band and producer. And Mike was obviously proven to be really good at letting the band be the band and catching the band, and he did a brilliant job.
1: He certainly did, but you also had um, Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero in there on the mixing, they, of course, had done Tesla's Mechanical Resonance and a bunch of uh, Injustice for All. Well, in fact, that came out after, I believe. But yeah. um, why not use Steve and Michael to be the producers? Because they had a proven track record. They were pumping out sort of massive album after massive album. Why not go with those two guys? Why just sort of push them off to, to mixing? Maybe that's not the right word. Why just have them mix it and not produce it?
2: Is my best memory... Um, At that time, they were known as remix specialists. Um, I think they'd done some work with the Rolling Stones, for example, and their reputation was predominantly as mixers. Um, They also lived and worked in New York, and Tom and I very definitely wanted to record in the band's hometown of L.A. We wanted to keep it close to home. So... Originally, um, when Mike was selected, Mike Klink, we thought that Mike would be doing the whole project, that he'd mix his own work as well. And we only went looking for somebody to mix the record after it was apparent that Mike had been completely sucked dry and had had quite enough of dealing with Guns N' Roses music at that point. So um, it wasn't that we were pushing them off or that we always intended to have somebody do the mixes and somebody do the recording. It was just a natural evolution of circumstance and a very, and a very fortuitous one because uh, Thompson and Barbiero, um, were amazing to watch because they worked manually. And it was almost like a dance routine in front of you as they tried not to collide with each other, as each would adjust, a knob here, a fader there, as the mix was going down. And what I loved about that was that they were very much connected to the feel of the tracks because they were so physical and manual in the way that they did it.
1: No no Pro Tools back then. It was all uh, by hand. Now, now you mentioned well,
2: well, that... They, they preferred not to use automation. Um, they felt that they connected better to... Uh, the fluidity of the energy of a recording by working manually,
1: which I think you would agree with, and certainly is something I agree with. I mean, to, to to get a to capture a live feel, it should be it should be live. It can't, you know. Um, now you mentioned that Mike Klink was exhausted or, towards the end of it; he couldn't, you know, was tired of dealing with Guns N' Roses. The album itself sounds very live, very fresh, very off the floor. Was it that way, or was there a lot of takes and comping mixes and and sticking things together, or was it really much a a live record? How how difficult was it to capture each song?
2: Mike understood um, the direction that he got from Tom and I, which was to keep it as vital as possible and he would have, you know, when he did basic tracks, he'd be looking for the, the drum track that had the best feel and vitality to it. Uh, if he could maintain as much of the bass track or as much of the rhythm of the guitar as he could on that, he would. Um, so the approach was to uh, keep it as vital as possible um, and not to get bogged down in overdubs. and. It's it's your basic tracks that really inform um, the feel. And if you can get good rhythm tracks, then when you're laying over your guitar, when you're your lead guitar, when you're laying over your overdubs, when you're laying your vocals over that, you've got a good vital energy that will support an overdub that has got some some blood and some perspiration in it. Um, You know... But that's not to say that there was not a lot. Of, there was a lot of time spent doing um, vocals, and they, Mike spent a fair amount of time with Slash too, getting what they what they were happy with. But the basic tracks had the energy in them. Um, you know, would would Stephen? I would say that not necessarily the most um, proficient and technical drummer in the world. But the thing about Stephen was that he brought an ebullience and a sense of joy to playing to the band um, that, quite honestly, hasn't been matched since. And he could play with a swing. And that's in those tracks.
1: Yeah, that really is. And, you know, we've uh, mentioned how Matt Sorum afterwards was sort of the human drum machine, and he's very much in the pocket, but... Guns sort of built its reputation on that loose swagger, that sort of imperfect drumming sound of of Steven Adler. It's, it's incredibly difficult to capture that um, afterwards. Um, it's 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 something that's uh, sorely missed with the band. Um, Tom Zutet recently did an interview with L.A. Weekly, and he talks about how songs like November Rain, Don't Cry, Restless Life were all ready for the album but not included for for various reasons. In your recollection, how many songs other than the 12 that made it were were prepared for the album? And was it difficult choosing and casting aside certain ones? Um, Tom certainly thinks that Reckless Life should be on there, but I have a hard time thinking, well, which one do you take off if you put that one on?
2: Well, for me, Reckless Life um, is very much of, the pre-appetite period. Um, it's it's a punk song with a punk attitude. And I think it's fair to say that appetite um, had, had moved on from what you can hear on live, like suicide, for example. So I had no problem with reckless life being held off. And one of the considerations uh, that we had at the time when appetite was being um, constructed was that it would be very smart to hold on to two or three songs for a second record so that we would would have uh, an opportunity to uh, confound what was called the sophomore jinx. Uh, A band comes together, they spend a year or two writing their initial songs, uh, they get a recording contract. Uh, suddenly they run through a video, they're out on the road supporting their debut record, they're working, working, working. They come back from uh, that album cycle, and the first thing a record company does is say, you need to go back in the studio and record a new album. We can't lose momentum. If you lose momentum, people forget about you, is what the record companies used to say, and they rush you into the studio to do another record and get you back out there working. Um, And an awful lot of bands would come back after that initial album cycle and they'd be exhausted um, mentally and physically and not have the energy to construct a a really good catalog of songs for a second album. And a lot of bands suffered from that, from a second album, Blues.
1: Right, the sophomore jinx, the infamous sophomore jinx.
2: Exactly. So part of the thinking was, let's hold over some songs as we've got a basis to start with for a second album. November Rain uh, was very near and dear and significant to Axel, and there was a sense of, you know what, if we hold this back, um, it gives you more time to uh, finesse the arrangement and be absolutely satisfied the song is going to be the way you want it. Uh, and if we've got a couple more songs, um, what was it, You Could Be Mine and Don't Cry?, um, we've got something to start with for a second album. So from my point of view, um, I was really content to hold back quality songs because we had a good album, and if we had something in the larder when we came back from our excursions, that would be to the good.
1: Is there any song on the album that you consider um, not relevant, or not, re- you know, just, eh, it's there, but we could have done without it?
2: No, the album is the album. Right. Um, And for me, a record is something that if somebody starts to play it, I don't want them to lift the needle or turn the machine off until they've taken the whole journey. And, you know, for me, Appetite took you on a little journey. And that, to me, is the mark of a good record.
1: David Geffen. Obviously, the album came out on Geffen Records. How instrumental was he in getting this album out? Um, did he give the the band and you and Tom a lot of pressure? Was he more hands off um, Could the album have succeeded on any other label if it had not been on geffen
2: that that, that That's more than a singular answer okay um, initially, let's take uh David's influence on the working process um David had no direct uh, influence on the working process, except for one, which was obviously critical. Uh, He was prepared to spend $365,000 on a debut record, which I found simultaneously terrifying, because that is a huge um, royalty hole to dig out of. And at the same time, I was pleased that we were going to get this record done. Um, But that was an awful lot of money to spend on a debut record and, obviously, he allowed that. Uh, Any other record company would have probably pulled the plug once we went past spending $100,000. So there's part of your answer. Um, I don't think another label would have put up with that kind of expenditure or a band of that kind of reputation. I, th- I think uh, the band would have terrified most of the other labels. Right. Um, in terms of would the band have succeeded on another label uh, once the record was finished, that again I doubt too. There was a lot of seren- serendipity to certain aspects of um, the development of the record. Um, and bear in mind that you know Eddie Rosenblatt in December of... Uh, 1987 um, took me out to a lunch and informed me that the label wanted to have the band come home and start preparing their second record and record their second record uh, and at that point we were at approximately 250,000 units sold um, you know so there was an aspect of you know we even survived Geffen because the, the policy the company policy was we've sold a quarter of a million albums. Uh, We basically recovered our money. Um, Now it's time to look at a second album. And um, I looked at him across the, uh, the table with a certain amount of annoyance and frustration. And I said, Eddie, we're at a quarter million sales in six months without any AOR airplay and without any MTV airplay can you imagine where we might get to if we got a little of both? And I was thinking, you know, we could maybe get this thing up to gold. Um, You know, what did I know? I I know nothing at all ever. Um, But there was a a big push from myself and from Tom to stay with the record in the coming year. And part of that push was um, harassment of MTV by everybody, to give the video a play because they'd never played it. Um, another thing that that we did was uh, we had an offer to play the Santa Monica Civic as a Christmas show at the end of '87, and I also had someone come to me in an offer to play uh, Perkins Palace, which was a, a, a smaller venue in Pasadena, and play more than one night and i chose to go with the pasadena shows because i felt that if we could do multiple nights in in pasadena it would be more of an event over the holiday period and we ended up squeaking through four nights at perkins palace and the executive at geffen noticed that we played four nights you know which was more than one you know had we done you know one Santa Monica Civic, they'd they'd have gone, okay, well, you know, they they can get a few people into Santa Monica Civic. But they were impressed by the fact that we played four nights at Perkins Palace and that had a sense of event. And it was the holiday period, and a lot of people came out to look and see what was going on, and David Lee Roth turned up to check out a show and so on and so forth. So it was a really good buzz over that. So coming out of the holiday period, we had a psychological momentum to stay with the record and keep supporting it um had i sat there at the at the uh lunch table and said yes sir I'll, you know i'll do as instructed um who knows where the band would have gotten to or what they would have been um but tom and i both felt that Nah, we're not giving up on this sucker right now. Are you kidding me? A quarter million records after six months with very little support? You're you're smoking crack if you think we're coming home. We're staying out there.
1: Yeah, and it's also a debut album. I mean, it's not the the tenth album by Bruce Springsteen or anything. I mean, it's it's a debut. But you know that whole MTV thing. They they are a content-based service provider. They needed videos. They needed content to show. Why do you think they were so resistant? Because they had Headbangers Ball. They had um, Ricky Rackman. They had all those guys pushing the Def Leopards and the Bon Jovis and the Poisons. And...
2: Headbangers head, head Ball didn't exist then. Okay. Well, I'm Canadian, no.
1: so I have no idea when, when it
2: actually existed.
1: We had the power hour up here.
2: Yeah. No, all, all that, the Headbangers Ball and Ricky Rackman uh, came in the wake okay. of... Uh, the record exploding in 1988 um, so they just whoever was programming you know they were a little more uh, anglo-centric uh, they were still playing a lot of English bands you know English pop bands and so on and so forth um, and I did send a rather acerbic uh, fax to John Kennelly, who was VP of uh, programming at the time uh, suggesting that, um, you know, instead of being so enamored with English Pretty Boys, that maybe he should be aware of an all-American band that is lighting up the area between Manhattan and Beverly Hills. And um, fortunately, uh, he took it all in, 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 in good humor. Kennelly um, and I ended up being really, really good and close friends. But uh, there was, a, there was a, an intimation on my part of you know these these ephemeral pop boys out of England don't cut it. How about a real rock and American rock and roll band John? you know be aware of what's going on and he had a little bit of a guilt circumstance because they'd also dropped the ball on um, a song called "Rock Me," and had hardly shown that on. MTV either, um, and of course AOR radio just blew up with that song, and there was a huge disparity between what radio was doing and MTV were doing with that particular song, and um, you know I, I, I had to give them a little bit of grief about that too because they did not come to that party either. Um, so yeah, there was, they. There, there was a. There was, it was a moment, and the circumstances. Were fortuitous
1: now now speaking of fortuitous the you know the album is out for six months seven months it has a very punk ethos there's you know it's so easy out to get me you know sort of this dirty rock and roll in your face and yet it's the one song that sort of doesn't fit in a sense sweet child of mine sort of the the, the lovey ballad with with the, the the guitar riff that's it's too long it's six minutes it's it doesn't fit the format of MTV and all this. It's the one that sort of turned it around for the band, right? I mean, that, that's the one that sort of changed everything when that became the single.
2: Well, I'd I differ with you there. Okay. Um, and, and I would say that Welcome to the Jungle, the video of Welcome to the Jungle, was the turnaround at MTV because that ignited a tremendous response straight away. And... I actually went and looked at that video not so long ago. I hadn't seen it in decades, and I sat and watched it, and I thought, you know what? It passes the test of time. Um, You know, obviously it's a it's a really good song, but it was also an intelligent video. And you know, when people talk about dangerous bands, my assessment of that is a dangerous band is one that. any band is ever dangerous you know as far as i'm concerned somebody with a a sawn off shotgun is dangerous you know bands are bands um but in terms of a band being called dangerous the element and factor that i think makes a band quote unquote dangerous is intelligence matched with viscerality and if you can see that there's an intelligence behind a band then you're required to think and respond and wonder what is going on and you know hence that ridiculous terminology of dangerous band. Um, and I think th- that video has an intelligence to it. Um, it had a whiff of politics to it. It hurt, certainly had a, a whiff of sociology to it um, that matched the content of the song. And that video made a mark. Um, so when we got to Sweet Child, and bear in mind, Um, Welcome to the Jungle, Um, we were given a budget of $75,000, which sounds huge these days. But actually, it was not enough for us to uh, get the production company we wanted to work with um, to shoot the video that we wanted shot. So I had to uh, piggyback uh, that shoot on the back of another shoot and amortize costs between both video shoots, to realize the storyboard that we wanted for Jungle. When we got around to um, Geffen saying, okay, you can shoot another video, they gave us a whopping budget of 35 grand, and that was it. And Nigel Dick and I looked at each other and said, well, we've got to do what we've got to do. Um, but, you know, from my point of view, I wasn't too upset because it meant that we basically had enough money to shoot the band and not shoot... A whole lot of palaver and storyline, so it was going to be about the band, which is always the best aspect of any video um, so that that limited us to our approach and the irony of it was was when Nigel and I were doing preparation for the video, um, we were both worried that we 'd be able to get enough of good footage in One shoot that would be overnight, and we'd probably get about four or five hours of shooting, if that. Um, And Nigel came up with a really inspired idea. And he brought, um, I think it was three Bolex 16mm cameras to the shoot. And he had a grip, load them with 16mm black and white film. And anybody who was on the shoot could pick up one of those Bolexes and shoot b roll So the idea being that we'd make sure that we had enough B-roll. Well, when we got to um, edit...
1: At this point, there was an interruption in the phone service, but uh, we got Alan right back to uh, finish this story and more about Appetite for Destruction. We are uh, back with Alan Niven. Got a little disconnected there on the phone, but uh, we were talking about the uh, sweet child of mine... A video shoot, and we got to the three cameras, Then I don't know what they're called. Bolex, is that what they're called?
2: They're called Bolexes. Okay. They're a 16-millimeter camera. Okay. And Nigel came up with this brilliant idea of having uh, a grip load three Bolex cameras that anybody who was on the shoot uh, could pick up and shoot B-roll um, while the main camera was, was uh, used to get the... Uh, the main aspect of the video. Um, and when we got to edit, um, and the reason we did this, you know, I don't know if, the, if this dropped out or not, but the reason we did this is we were worried we'd have enough footage on, on a four or five hour shoot to be able to get a decent edit together. Um, so hence Nigel's inspired thinking. And when Nigel and I got to sit down in the edit bay and look at all the footage, um I looked at Nigel and I said listen do your primary edit which was a combination of color footage and black and white footage and then once we've done that we're going to do another edit purely black and white Um, except for the very very last shot and the irony is that we only had this budget of $35,000 but we ended up with two videos of the song Um, and when uh, MTV played The primary video, um, it connected really, really well with the audience, um, primarily because it was basically just the band. And I remember getting a phone call from John Kennelly informing me that we were about to hit burnout on the video, at which point we delivered the second video and we got uh, a whole new lease of life behind the song on MTV. Um, which is one of the things that helped drive it uh, to being such a success. So, again, I'd love to say that it was genius and premeditated from the beginning, um, but at least we were smart enough to take advantage of what developed in front of us.
1: Yeah, you really were. Um, What was the other video that was being piggybacked on? Was it a a great white shoot?
2: Yes, it was a great white shoot. It was um, Lady Red Light.
1: Oh, there you Uh,
2: go. And that was... uh, piggybacking Welcome to the Jungle onto Lady Red Light, which meant that I used the same director and uh, the same crew for four days, so there were two days on each video, and we could amortize the the, the cost of um, the videos, which meant that we could then uh, get shot what I wanted to get shot on Welcome to the Jungle, because the... uh, the budget that we had from Geffen would not allow us to get to the storyboard that we wanted for Jungle. So by piggybacking it, um, we managed to cut corners and costs, um, four-day rentals on equipment, etc., etc., and we managed to get the uh, the storyboard of Jungle that I wanted to get.
1: Oh, that's, that's brilliant. Now, as the record is being made and, and, and there are ups and downs and producers that are being chosen and, and songs being written, what exactly is your role? Were were you there from the get-go, listening to every demo, getting in the studio and making suggestions? Or did you sort of show up every three months and say, oh, okay, well, you've got three good songs, keep going. What, what was the exact sort of day-to-day involvement with the making of the album?
2: Well, in, ter- in terms of um, the material for Appetite, um, one of the things that was a, a huge positive to me was that the band could obviously write, and they could write some really excellent songs. And the other band I was dealing with, um, I had, over, the, over time, slowly become uh, one of the main writers in the band um, to make up for lack of skills there on the part of certain individuals. So I was really happy that I wouldn't have to have that kind of involvement with the band and it wouldn't split my energy and it wouldn't, you know, and it wouldn't compromise and I wouldn't be trying to get myself into two different headspaces. Um, they wrote really, really good material. That said, obviously I paid attention to the songs and, you know, obviously, you know, mentally in my own mind checked them off and went, that's a good song, that's a good song. Um, There was one song, though, that I was a little concerned about, Um, and I felt that it was going to be an important song, and I felt that uh, there needed to be something said about it. And that was actually Welcome to the Jungle. And originally it was a, um, to my memory, it was a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And I felt uncomfortable about that um, arrangement, and in a uh, pre-production rehearsal, I asked Slash and Axel to look at that, and they came up with um, a really tasty little um, guitar bridge to break up it being just verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus. Um, and that was, you know, that, that was the only time that I ever had a comment. Um, I did question um, Axel about Rocket Queen um you know because it's so overtly two different states of mind and i said are you sure you want them in one expression or are they two different songs and axel said no definitely i it's one song with two states of mind and i said okay fine you know you know what you're doing he
1: he, he, uh he certainly does because that's that's one of the the greatest songs um In 88, I had a chance to see Guns open for Aerosmith on on an extension of the permanent vacation tour. Now, I know that has maybe nothing to do specifically with the making of the album, but how important was that tour? Because when I look back on things, at least from my Canadian perspective, that tour seems to be the one that brought them to the greatest attention. And, and, uh, you know, apart from the Welcome to My Jungle video, apart from Sweet Child of Mine, it put them in front of people in seats. Was that tour important, or was that just sort of another cog in the process where Jungle got it started and Sweet Child pushed it along, and or was it sort of a make and break kind of tour for them?
2: In a number of respects, there was an aspect of make and break to it. Okay. Um, we had had uh, a couple of misadventures. Um, there was an ACDC dc tour that I personally secured for them um it seemed to elude the agent we had at the time um who i think was playing politics but we we got to um the opening on an acdc tour and then we had an incident in phoenix and acdc when we don't want any part of this band um we were out with uh, iron maiden which wasn't necessarily the uh uh most sympathetic of combinations um, but at least I could keep all my smack heads on a bus and keep an eye on them and keep them alive and keep them mobile and away from their dealers Um, and that had gone down the tubes and from my perspective we had to go out on at least one more tour to see where this record was going and the only one available was Aerosmith. And of course Aerosmith at that time were all, all rehab fellas. Um, you know, So in ordinary circumstances, the likelihood of Tim Collins taking on GNR to open for guys that he had um, rigid c- control over to keep them from their habits um, was very slight. But we were banned. Uh, we, we were rather label mates. And um, I went to Eddie Rosenblatt and I said, you know, we need the Aerosmith tour and you've got to deliver it for us. And David Geffen and Eddie Rosenblatt ba- basically beat Tim Collins up and, and insisted that he take out GNR. Um, so thank you, David and Eddie. And off we went on the Aerosmith tour, which actual did not want to do at the time Um, however from my perspective of my involvement with the band that tour is the highlight of my experience with the band that was the highest moment uh, the magic of an incredible response being manifest by the audience. I used to feel bad for Aerosmith having to follow GNR on stage because GNR would suck all the energy out of huge audiences um, before they hit the stage. But that was an incredible tour, and it remains in 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 my memory as the highlight of my experience with the band.
1: Yeah, and and. Now, I, I would agree that they were sucking the energy, except I saw them in Saratoga Springs, New York, open for Aerosmith, and they, I think they walked off after f- four songs or something because somebody had thrown a bottle. But 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 from the <laughs> Canadian perspective, that's where they became just more noticeable. There was just something about that combination because I remember the buzz at the time was, oh, the next big thing is going to open for Aerosmith. Next tour, Aerosmith will be opening up for them. And I, and I just remember thinking... Well, that's silly. Aerosmith is not opening for anybody. Aerosmith is, you know, the greatest band ever. Um, But 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 yeah, no no. But I'm just thinking. I'm trying to recollect those days of 1988 because there was just just those two together. That there there was that you know there was an energy there, and you could tell that that was sort of like okay, Guns is not just an opener. They're not just five kids.
2: Yeah, and and the guy's an Aerosmith too took a big shine to GNR and I think part of that shine was you know that they were having to make these incredibly saccharine and processed records for Geffen under John Cullodna and I think part of them um, looked with envy at GNR who were not being forced to do that and who, who were going out there and being a very raw and visceral band which once Aerosmith were themselves to a degree, and I think they looked at that and said, you know, they're our little brothers in a way. Um, there was a really good relationship between both bands. Um, you know, yeah, there uh, was, and,
1: and there was an irony also that at 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 that time, Metal Hammer magazine had somewhat dismissed Guns N' Roses as being the poor man's Aerosmith, and when they got on that tour they showed that they weren't the poor man, anybody. They were exactly. Guns N' Roses.
2: It, 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 exa- exactly. Um, you know, it, and it's, it's like going, you know, I could be accused of saying, oh, Guns N' Roses were your attempt to have your poor man's version of the Rolling Stones. No, the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones, Guns N' Roses are Guns N' Roses. But my perspective after, after um, a year or so with the band was that uh, um, they had the potential and the talent to have the kind of career and build the kind of catalog that the Rolling Stones had. And they very much had um, personified the attitude that had turned me on about the Stones, which is utterly anti-authoritarian. And they espoused the worth of every soul, including the soul's of urchins from under the street. Um, which I think is elemental in rock and roll. It's that blue-collar heart of rock and roll, um, and I think they shared that with the Stones. And of course, to me, Aerosmith were, when I first looked at them, I thought they were a poor man's Rolling Stones.
1: Right. The, the, which is which is the irony there that Aerosmith are the poor man's Stones, and and you know I'm, I think of the the math, you know. You know, Rolling Stones greater than Aerosmith, Aerosmith greater than Guns N' Roses, and yet none of that's true. They're they're all equal. No, none, <laughs> n-
2: none of that's true. You right. know, was, uh, when we're evaluating bands, we you know we we have this uh, capacity to you know make those glib and unfortunate um, comparisons. Oh, there are poor man's this or a poor man's that. In certain cases, sometimes we're right. I mean, the New York Dolls, to, to me, are a wretched and incompetent version of the rolling stones um you knew what they were trying to be but they just didn't have it to be it um but with the stones and aerosmith and gnr each of those bands had a true essence of rock and roll within them um that they eventually defined with their own personalities um you know and that essence of rock and roll as far as i'm concerned is anti-authoritarian, and the best of rock and roll is produced by bands who become the voice of the disenfranchised, who speak a little bit of truth to power. Yeah, And I think all of those bands have that ability.
1: And uh, I also, uh, and I don't know if the word is irony, but I want to underline when you said that you know ACDC didn't want anything to do with Guns N' Roses back then, <laughs> after, after what happened last year. Apparently they do... Um, here 's a question that you might not have been asked before, but record companies like to repackage and repurpose stuff if there was ever a guns N' roses deluxe edition and i'm pretty sure that within the next thirty years there probably will be one because that's what that's what we do we We repackage re what would you like to see on it? Would you like to see sort of the original demos of of November rain on there and and your crazy the slower version and or, or would you, I mean, how, how how would you see it? Or what would you do if you had the decision-making power to put out a deluxe edition?
2: Well, you're talking to somebody who's a little bit Catholic in that I believe the decisions have already been made in the construction of the original album and its form. And repackaging to me is just marketing and an aspect of never mind the quality, feel the width. You know, it's, it, 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 to me, I don't sure. like it. I don't, I don't like repackaging at all. What I would be curious about would be to have Use Your Illusions made into one album and see how that worked out because I think there is one really great album in Use Your Illusions, but I'm still skeptical about the fact that there are two
1: yeah well that i'll agree on uh, there's a lot of bands out there that have put out double albums double studio albums not double live and on every single occasion every single occasion i go wow it's great that you gave me 25 songs but i really would have preferred like the best 12 <laughs> you know
2: yeah well it, 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 it's interesting you know uh, back in the day when we had vinyl and of course uh, most of your listeners probably don't know what vinyl is um You'd, you'd have approximately 20, 20 minutes per side of an album. And I found it very interesting. There's a, uh, a lecture thing that you can find on the Internet called the TED Talks. And they're very stimulating um, oh, and interesting lectures. Yep. And the guy who puts them together limits the TED Talk to 18 to 20 minutes because in his research, that is the maximum amount of time for attention um, span concentration and comprehension. And that if you go beyond 20 minutes, people start to glaze over, um, which I find interesting, you know, it's an A and a B side. And I still fervently believe that the best record is the one that ends just before you want it to. And you reach out to hit replay rather than look at your watch and go, Oh, here's the 15th song here. Um, because for me an album is a form of self-expression and I'm a firm believer that 40 to 45 minutes is the length of time that the album listening experience supports and I like a record that lasts about that long and then I'll listen to a different one
1: yeah you know and and I will have to totally agree with that. I remember back in the day listening to Aerosmith Rocks and Kiss Destroyer and all these albums that were done within 38 minutes, and then they invented CD, and suddenly everybody was doing 17-song albums, and it went from, wow, I heard Rocks, and I'm done, and I can go play tennis, to, is this thing still fucking on? Holy crap. <laughs> Does this ever yeah. end? And... uh the late '80s, we got a lot of CDs that were like, "Is this thing just ever going to end?" Because I really got stuff to do, and um, it's too bad. And, I, and I'm glad to see bands like The Biter's and stuff like that are coming back to that ethos of less is more. Less is more. Yes,
2: I, absolutely. Less is is more in certain contexts, and you know, as far as a record goes, um, and repackaging goes. Those are marketing decisions that are contrary to, and I don't want to sound ridiculous and pompous here, but it goes against the art of constructing a record. Um, Because to me, a record is a journey. It takes you from A to Z, hopefully. And if you start adding on, you know, this mix of that, this mix of that, it's just, to me, an aspect of quantity over quality for no purpose that compromises the sense of construction and the art in that construction
1: well because there's, there's a lot of talk in in the fan community that it would be nice to have it repackaged with the ritz show you know the infamous Ritz show. um i guess from your perspective the ritz show should be released but as a standalone and just live and and in its old in its glory yeah. yeah
2: yes absolutely uh and the other aspect is you know the the the, the joke back in the day is there's no such thing in a, as a demo. There are only unreleased masters because once you record something, anything, um, and the record company sign you to a contract where they swallow the copyright of that, uh, if you're successful, um, they'll release any band's greatest farts if they think they can make a profit out of it, which is undermines the whole creative process as far as I'm concerned Um, but a demo should be a demo and should remain so and if it was it's kind of like would Picasso sell his charcoal um, initial constructions of his paintings Um, probably not Um, but it's that thing that you know those charcoal initial charcoal daubs on, on a canvas when somebody be- starts becoming a famous artist start to accrue a value because somebody wants it and if somebody wants it they'll pay for it and if somebody will pay for it somebody will sell it to them but is it valid i question
1: that yeah and uh you know we'll uh, we'll leave it at that because it's it's we've done a little over 40 minutes here of just talking about one album which is um was challenging for me, I have to say. Normally, I, I jump around from topic to topic. At this point, in a normal conversation, we would have been knee deep in talking about different singers and different this and Guns N' Roses and Great White. But um, it is a great album. And and it, is there anything we missed? And and then we'll we'll get a final word on. What do you think of the state of Guns N' Roses in 2017? Everybody in 2015 said it'll never happen. In 2016, it did happen with Slash going back. And uh, everybody said, well, it's not going to be good. And to me, uh, it's, it's great. Uh, <laughs> Mitch, Yeah,
2: who could see this coming? And I've had a number of people in the last week tell me that the show in New York was fantastic.
1: Yes, of course it was. Uh, uh,
2: I think part of the reason why it was fantastic was because it was confined in a smaller building, which amplifies the power, and everybody has said that Slash was sublime, and he is definitely playing the best, the best of his life. Um, he, his playing at the moment is magnificent. And I have to take my cap off to Axel. Who saw this coming? That is an incredible workload that he has gotten through already. And now they're playing over three hours. Um, I don't know how he's doing it. I don't know if they're injecting him with virgin's blood. But whatever they're doing, he has taken on an incredible workload and brought it. And let me tell you, when... um, the reunion, and I have a hard time with the reunion because, from my personal perspective, if Izzy's not there, it's not truly Guns N' Roses reunion. But when when this thing first got rolling, all the conventional wisdom was that maybe they'd get through five dates before it imploded, and exploded. And I just have to say that you know I'm, I'm mildly in awe at the moment. I am absolutely amazed at how many shows they've done i'm I'm really stunned at the workload that Axel has shouldered and i I think that's just it's i I can't figure it out I can't figure out how he's done it He's in his fifties you know i I draw the analogy that you know people like Pavarotti um, sang long and hard at a performance well into their l- later years, but a rock and roll show of three and a half hours that a lot to take out of any human body um, and it 's a lot of work when you 're in your twenties when you 're in your fifties um, it 's amazing i'm i 'm really stunned by it
1: and and i 'll add that not only is it difficult at that age, but a lot of the shows have been in these outdoor settings, and a lot of these shows have been done in these incredible temperatures where it 's going to be you know ninety degrees outside a hundred degrees outside, and the band has they have gone through all the elements and they've 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 done it they're just doing it and uh i will also say for the record that you take those chinese democracy songs you know chinese democracy better this i love and you put slash's guitar on them and they have that magical element they become de facto Guns N' Roses, classic era songs, they just sound absolutely wonderful with Duff. And I, cause I, I don't want to forget Duff. With Duff's bass playing and Slash's fingers on those songs, it, it's just a, it's a great show. It's just a great show. And, you know...
0: It, it, it,
2: it really is. And um, the one thing that I do know is that Slash is playing at his peak at the moment. Um... Who knows where he'll be in two or three years, but he is playing absolutely um, at an excellence.
1: Uh, Yeah, all of them. And uh, hopefully they will reconvene in the studio and create some more studio magic, but uh, until then, we have live magic, and I'm uh, perfectly at ease and happy with that. So there we go. Thank you. Thank you for everything, by the way.
2: You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: And the, uh, the Montreal Canadiens will win a Stanley <laughs> Cup uh, sometime uh, in the uh, next century. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I, I probably won't be here to see it. But <laughs>
2: unfortunately, <laughs> oh. I have to inform you that they suffer from the curse of the blade. And oh. they are not going to win for a long, long time.
1: Yes. And, and I'm here to remind you that...
2: Edmonton, Edmonton will be more likely to raise the cup for the Habs.
1: That I'll agree with, by the way, because that general manager has stitched together and cobbled together a little dangerous powerhouse that nobody pays attention to because they're not the New York Rangers and they're not the Los Angeles Kings and they're not the Toronto Maple Leafs. They're just this backwood town... But they've got a lot of firepower, and the and the moves they've made this summer is going to make them that much better. They they are not going to be bounced. What was it, the first round or the second round this year? They they're not they're not going out that early this year. We will have some May hockey in Edmonton. I would
2: I would not be surprised if they made the Stanley Cup finals this come- in this coming year.
1: Yep, and if not this year, definitely in the next two or three. Because uh, as uh, Connor McDavid and that team gels, and they, they smooth over the little holes that they had. Um, yeah, it's going to be a great team. And, of course, uh, I was just going to say, um, we all know that hockey is a much, much better sport than soccer and or rugby will ever be, and there's no debating that.
2: And that's <laughs> when I say thank you very much, Mr. Fulafon, <laughs> and good night. <laughs>
1: thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. And uh, it is now time to go buy some milk the kiddies there you go (laughs) (laughs) merci bonsoir you're very welcome (laughs) bye-bye you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafond rock talk mitch here are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid well in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price you need pricing context information that empowers you to feel confident with TrueCar, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local TrueCar certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by True Car Certified Dealers for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. TrueCar customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with TrueCar certified dealers. TrueCar users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. HBO's Game of Thrones is back for its seventh season. Winter is finally here, and so are the
0: White Walkers. Will the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros survive the threat from the north, or will they fall in the looming war for the Iron Throne? After you're done watching an episode, join the discussion here on the Game of Thrones After Show on Podcast One. Every week, our hosts discuss each episode in detail, from shocking twists to fan theories, as the series chronicles the violent struggle among the realm's noble families for ultimate power. Join the fray every week on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond.
1: Welcome back. I certainly hope you enjoyed my uh, conversation with former Guns N' Roses manager Alan Niven. Always a great pleasure to uh, to talk to Alan. Let us move over to another stalwart of the 80s music scene, the one, the only Frankie Benelli of Quiet Riot. They have a new album out called Road Rage. Um, quite a story to that album. It was supposed to come out in the spring with a different singer. They fired him, unfortunately, after it wasn't working out in the live setting. And then, instead of releasing the album and supporting it with this other singer, they went out and got James Durbin and re-recorded all the vocals and delayed the album to August. But it is out now, and it is uh, certainly worth checking out. Frankie, of course, and I have known each other for many years. When my daughter was born in 2003, he was certainly kind enough to send over a nice pink sweater as a birth gift for my daughter, So uh, that to say is that our conversations are a little more relaxed than your typical interview, interviewee, interviewer kind of, uh, you know. Anyway, uh, that to say, uh, on this one, it was a little more loose. Called Frankie at home and he had his dogs barking all over the place during the interview. I will remove as much of that as uh, possible just to make it a, a more enjoyable listening experience. But I have to leave some of it in just for you know, authenticity and all that wonderful stuff. Uh, So here you go. Without further ado, one of my favorite people in this world, the one, the only, drummer extraordinaire, that is right, drummer extraordinaire, Frankie Benelli. We are speaking with Frankie Benelli. The new album is Road Rage. Frankie, it is always a great, great pleasure to be speaking with you.
3: Uh, Always great to hear from my friend from the great white Canadian North.
1: Yes, the, 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 the Canada. Now... My daughter's birthday is August 1st, so just a few days before the album uh, gets released or got released. And uh, when she was born, you had sent over a wonderful pink sweater. And so I still have that as a as a great memory. So I still, <laughs> still thank you for that. So there you go. Fourteen years ago, that happened. Well, it goes fast, huh? It
3: goes oh, way. man, time does fly.
1: <laughs> time flies. But let's talk about... Uh, road rage and th- there's so many things uh, to go over. It was supposed to be released. It got delayed. Uh, you for a long time didn't want to do new album. Now you've, you've gone and made a new album. Uh, let's start with that. Why the reticence for, for a few years about putting out new music? And you had been very vocal about it, saying no, 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 there's no point. And here we are with a great great new album called
3: Road Rage? Well, essentially what happened is, you know, um, um, people, uh, whether they be fans or or not, you know, they kept saying, well, how come you're not going to do a record? How come you're not going to do a record? How come you're not going to do a record? So, you know, I avoided it. Um, and finally, I went ahead and did, uh, and did a record that was titled uh, QR10, which had six brand new songs on it, and then four um, pieces of uh, live music that included... Um, the late, great Kevin Dubrow. And and my reasons for adding those four live tracks was that I still couldn't get my head wrapped around doing a new Choir Ride record without Kevin. So that was my way of including him. And, you know, I, I released it just uh, uh, on my own. I, you know, financed the whole thing, released it and did it only as uh, digital downloads. And then all of a sudden I've got all this criticism that uh, that I I I'm not putting up physical copies. Um, the production is horrible. Uh, the songwriting is terrible. The singing is awful. That I included tracks with Kevin Dubrow because I'm using his good name on and on and on and on. And so I said, okay well, careful what you wish for. And I, and I pulled it, I deleted all the tracks uh, from every portal and then decided, you know, I mean, if, if it's going to get this much criticism, why even bother? Um, And so fast forward to, uh, to road rage, you know, I was approached by, by Frontiers records. They wanted a a quiet ride record and I gave it a lot of thought and I said to myself, okay, I'll release a record because Frontiers will do a digital and physical copies. And as it turns out, they're also doing vinyl on it. So at least, you know, that that aspect of it will be fulfilled. Uh, And then if somebody wants to criticize any other aspect of it, I I could I could care less, you know, go for it. Have at it.
1: Right. Let, Let them criticize all they want. Now, you mentioned the songwriting. If you look back at the early quiet ride, especially Metal Health, the the album, uh kevin dubrow has a lot of the writing credits who is responsible for the writing on road rage and was there a concern that you didn't have kevin's pen involved in the process
3: essentially essentially when you go you know you go back historically i think it's important to understand that when we oh by the way those are my dogs they're my legal team of bark a lot and barky i'm trying to work here um at, at any rate um you know, when we recorded the Mental Health record, Kevin and I had been playing the majority of those songs um, for two years before we recorded uh, Mental Health in 1982, which came out in 83. Um, and uh, the majority of the material, with with few exceptions, one of the exceptions being the song uh, Metal Health Bang Your Head, uh, was stuff that Kevin had written. Um, and you know, Kevin, Kevin was very protective about, about the songwriting and he wanted to be the main songwriter. And since he had to sing the material, uh, and so be it, I never had a problem with, I didn't have a problem, uh, with it then. And I don't have a problem with it now. He was a great songwriter, but when it came time to write material for the road rage record, um, I, you know, I gave everybody in the band an opportunity to come up with, uh, with material, um, and, but at the end of the day, the, the stuff that seemed to, seem to fit the record best were things that were written by myself and my, um, songwriting partner, Neil Citron, who's also, uh, a Grammy award-winning engineer and, uh, and he engineered the record. So, um, that's the way it came down with the exception of, of lyrics. Of course, it was, uh, it was the, the music, um, and, uh, there you have it.
1: When you put together a new album like Road Rage, do you look back at the band's pedigree and say okay we need to have a song that sounds like from this album or given it's 2017 you just say hey it's just going to be what it's going to be and if it's a new quiet riot sound then so be it
3: yeah i didn't i didn't look at it from from that perspective i mean there's there's a couple of tracks there's a couple of tracks on the record that um that have um have a connection i think with with the sound and the songwriting uh of the band in the past uh I think the song Freak uh, Freak Flag is one of those, Uh, but none of it was intentional. I mean, I wasn't trying to to make a copy of of Mental Health Condition Critical QR3 combined. Uh, We just started writing material. And at the end of the day, you know, you have to be the musician, Uh, the musicians, the songwriters have to be happy. With what the material is uh, first before you can even present it to somebody else, and and if the fans like it, uh, great. And if and if they don't, that's that's their their call, their choice. But no, I really wasn't trying to. Not only was I not trying to uh, make a um, a record that was a combination of the songwriting from the past, but I fully knew that um, with James singing and his vocal style, he has the the range that Kevin that Kevin um, had. Um, he can hit all the highs, he can hit all the lows and everything in between. Uh, but he's a different vocalist and a different vocal style than Kevin. So I wasn't trying to to do a clone uh, vocal on the Road Rage record.
1: Right. Now, uh, let's talk about the vocalist situation. You had a guy before, you made the album, was going to come out in the spring. That guy moved on, and now you got in James, which I, I don't want to say, maybe thankfully, because I don't want to be rude to anybody, but... James is a fucking monster. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a voice. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that he's on there. But talk to me about, about that change and deciding to pull the album and then recutting everything. It's, it's actually
3: pretty, pretty simple. Uh, and there's, there's two aspects of it, um, dealing directly with the situation with the record, um, after only doing five shows with the, with the former vocalist, it came very apparent, uh, not just to me, but the entire band, that it wasn't going to work with this individual. Um, and so it was put to a vote and, uh, and he was, uh, summarily fired. Um, What happened, though, is that at that point, the the road rage record is complete in the can, being manufactured, Um, and I had to be very honest with the label. I said to the label, listen... um, I have another vocalist and I want to go into the studio, and uh, all the music was written um, by myself, Neil Citron, and and then one song by Alex Grossi, and then one song Chuck participated in. So all that music was written by the remaining uh, individuals in the band. So I went to the label and I said, uh, um, I have to be very honest with you. Um, I'm changing vocalists. This is the reason why I'm changing vocalists. And I would never ask um a vocalist to sing somebody else's uh somebody else's lyrics, somebody else's melodies. And I can tell you um with all sincerity that there is no way once I've made this change that I will promote the record. I simply will not promote it. So um I I um I petition that they let me um re record all the all the tracks uh, the vocals with uh, brand new lyrics and brand new melodies. And uh, after some uh, negotiations, I was successful in doing that uh, and brought in James to do it. But if you go even further back, my original choice last year um, to have uh, join the band as, as a vocalist was James. I got in touch with James uh, early on last year, uh, 2016. And, uh, and I asked him, uh, if he'd be interested in joining Choir Riot, and which he was, but the problem was that he had just signed, um, a contract to do a residency at a show in Las Vegas. Uh, and I just simply did not have the time to wait for him because it was uh, kind of an open-ended, uh, contract with him. So then I reached out to my second option and my second option had just decided that he didn't want to go out on the road anymore. So that wasn't going to help my cause or the cause of quiet ride at all. Um, and, uh, and I went with the third option. Um, and as, uh, as luck would have it, it didn't work out. At the time that things uh, were, were not going well with, uh, with that vocalist, um, I reached out to James again, uh, and his uh, commitments uh, were all done, and he was clear of those commitments, and, uh, and I asked him to join the band.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it really worked out. Now, now, talk to me about what James brings to the band, because he, he is a much younger guy. In fact, he, he's born six years after Metal Health came out. Um, what energy or what what does he bring in terms of different perspective or just anything to the band
3: well energy is is a key component there. Um, he reminds me, he reminds me a lot of, of Kevin in, in the fact that as you know, for a fact, Kevin was, was full of energy. That is something that Kevin never lacked. Um, and, and that is something that James has brought to choir ride again, which I completely and totally welcome. I mean, he's, uh, he's very professional. He's very on it. He's very creative. He's a great songwriter. Um, and, uh, And he's such a nice guy. Physically, he's, I think, like 6'2", and Kevin was uh, 6'4". So from that perspective, seeing him on stage, um, that reminds me somewhat of Kevin. And again, the bottom line is, the fact that because he has this unbelievable vocal uh range and style he can deliver uh in his own way he can deliver um the choir ride catalog the old material that we still continue to perform live uh as well as bringing something fresh and new to the table because he's young uh so it's it's really it's it's a lot of fun to be uh to be around him
1: yeah i can imagine he 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 really does bring i've seen the videos i haven't seen the band live yet which uh, with uh, with james i should say uh, very much looking forward to it. Um, July of 1986, uh, Quiet Ride 3 comes out. Uh, 31 years ago. we You, you mentioned it just before. Um, talk mm-hmm. to me about that album and the importance, because it, it was the first one that had Chuck on it, uh, at least credited mm-hmm. fully. And it has one of mm-hmm. my, well, in fact, my favorite Quiet Ride song, the Wild and the Young um, just talk to me about that since we're we're only a couple of weeks away from its or past its anniversary and stuff it really was a a great album but it just didn't it didn't get its due i don 't think right
3: yeah you know that was uh that was a a, a difficult time for me personally because you know, having having chuck um officially become a member of uh, of this thing called choir riot um also came on the heels of, of, you know, one of my dearest and still one of my closest friends, Rudy Sarzo leaving the band. So it was, you know, it was, um, A lot of mixed emotions because Rudy was leaving. I knew he wasn't going to be in the band anymore, so I wouldn't be around him. And, and, you know, Rudy and I have known each other uh, since 1972, 10 years before we ever recorded the mental health record. So that was a difficult thing for me to process. Um, At the same time, um, I had known Chuck since 1980, uh, so it, it was, uh, it was a comfortable pair of shoes and he's, Chuck's a great, a great musician. He's a great bass player. He's a great, uh, background vocalist. So, you know, there was, uh, there was a sense of familiarity, uh, at the same time, even with the change choir ride had gotten so much criticism, uh, about the condition critical record, uh, coming, coming out right. on the heels of the metal health record. And, 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 you know, people criticize it for, for being too much like Metal Health, so on and so forth, which, you know, it's amazing. I think it sold 2 million copies, so it's you know, how, how awful could uh, could it be? But I think everybody was aware of that, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that the writing style went in, in by and large, a different direction than it had originally. Um, there was an introduction of keyboards, uh, in my opinion, too much of it, Uh, but I also understand that at the time that the, that the record came out, uh, just about everybody was using too much keyboards. Um, and it was, uh, it was a, it was a very, it was a very strange situation. I mean, and also at that point in time, you know, Kevin, um, sadly was, was pretty much on, on this, on this road of substance abuse. Um, and all of these factors just added to the tension that I think is underlying in the record. I think it's a great record. I still completely, um, stand behind it. I think, I think the wild and the young is one of the best songs that the band, um, ever wrote. Uh, having said all that, the band, the, uh, the record didn't even, um, go gold. It's, it didn't even sell 500,000 units. So, you know, there it is.
1: Wow. Ah, which is strange. And of course, uh, the album after their, uh, QR comes out and you have Paul Shortino uh, come in as vocalist. Um, what was that like for you, seeing Kevin having to bow out? Was it was it welcomed because he was going through that difficult time, or was it like, what are we doing here? Well, you know, um, and
3: and this is this is fact. What happened is, by the time you know, by the time we were ending the touring cycle for the QR three record, we were uh, we were playing in Japan and we had just gotten to Japan, and uh, I got a you know, our manager was there. Um, and also the the foreign uh, territory agent was also there, and I got a call to come down for a meeting. So I assumed that everybody got the same call. And when I went downstairs, the, Chuck had gotten the call, and and but I didn't see Kevin. So I said, "What's going on?" Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, the the opinion of the label the opinion of the producer, the opinion of management, the opinion of the foreign agent was that things could not continue the way they were with Kevin. Now, my position was that we only had, uh, you know, I think maybe a half dozen shows to do in Japan then one in Hawaii, uh, and we should just, you know, put this on the back burner until we get to Los Angeles and then decide if and what to do, if anything. uh, My opinion was that perhaps, um, it was time to just call it a day. Uh, so it was agreed that we would, you know, we would regroup and deal with this when we got back to Los Angeles. Um, and I went upstairs and as I walk into my room, the phone rings and it's Kevin just screaming and yelling at me. And I said, uh, I'll be right there. So I went to his room and there was a rumor going around in LA that Kevin was going to be fired. So it had nothing to do with this meeting that just happened, nothing at all. Um, and, uh, and the, he had received the phone call from a very nefarious character, uh, that indulged Kevin in his, um, in his addictions, uh, that he was going to be fired. So, you know, he started screaming and yelling at me and I said, listen, I'm going to be very honest with you. Um, I got a call, uh, just a little while ago, went downstairs, there was a meeting, this is what was discussed. And I said, and I said, you know, if, if we can't work the situation out, maybe it's time to just call it a day. And Kevin didn't want to hear. And he, uh, he, you know, says, well, I'm quitting. And I said, all right, Kevin, you know, whatever you want to do. And I, and I left the room. The odd thing about it is within 12 hours, Kevin was calling me, what are you doing for dinner? (laughs) And I said, uh, we're in Japan, uh, I'm going to do sushi. And he goes, all right, let's go have dinner together. And it was never brought up again. It just was never brought up again. Um, and everything, you know, there were tensions when we did the uh, the final shows in Japan and a great deal of tension at the last show in Hawaii. Uh, but it was never spoken about again until we got back to Los Angeles. And uh, there was a board meeting. And at that board meeting, it was, uh, it was decided that um, – that uh kevin uh, would have to go now at that point i felt that once kevin was out of the band the band was just going to disintegrate anyway um so my position was that it was all going to go sideways it wasn't like kevin was going to be out of the band it was there, there was just not going to be any more quiet riot um and then i was uh i was reminded by both management and the label that we had a four record deal and that the label was owed another record and that i would be in some uh, serious financial legal jeopardy if uh if i didn't uh do something to put another record out uh to commit the um to uh, meet the demands of the deal
1: right so yeah which is which is one of those unfortunate realities of the music business right i mean you're under contract it's not about throwing kevin out and getting a new guy in and replacing him there's we're going to take your house if you don't make this record kind of thing um, but overall the yeah at- I
3: under you know I understood I understood all that. Um, I just I just you know I just thought that maybe they would they would uh, they would just the label would just say uh, and manage would just say, hey, we had a really good run with the mental health record, not bad with uh, with condition critical, um, got a little momentum in q r three maybe it's time to call it a day, but you know a deal is a deal and uh, and there you have it
1: yeah and and god forbid they treat you uh humanely, <laughs> right in in the music in the music business but uh overall though on that album and I'll get off of it after this mm-hmm. embarrassed by it happy by it, it it is what it is i mean is there you know
3: oh i'm not i'm not embarrassed i'm not embarrassed at all about the record uh, i think there's uh there's a couple of things to understand at at this point now um I'm the one that's being held responsible by, by label and management. And therefore I am the one that's having to make um, decisions as to what to do with this thing called quiet riot in this fourth album. So I purposely, you know, initially I, I started getting cassette tapes. You know, when word got out that we were looking to um, to replace Kevin, I got a lot of cassette tapes. You remember those, Um, a lot of cassette tapes of singers that were like, you know, really inadequate, uh, Kevin clones. Um, and, and nothing, I wasn't hearing anything that I thought was going to work. And I didn't want to go in that direction anyway, because, you know, then as now you don't replace Kevin Dubrow, you don't replace that personality. You don't replace that voice. You do the best you can with, uh, with what you got to work with. Um, and I didn't know Paul at the time. Um, I knew about the band rough cut, uh, only because I thought he did a phenomenal job, on um on the song uh, "Piece of my heart um so i uh, i spoke with management i had management get in touch with him and that's how you know that's how paul came into this. um it was intentional not to do a typical choir ride record so if you if you listen to that record there's i don't think there's anything really that that um that's um attached to to the sound of Choir Ride from the past with the exception of of maybe my drum sound um, but I also you know you have to understand that that was the the only record the only Choir Ride record that didn't have the mask on it and uh, and I take responsibility for that I said I said to the label um I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, Kevin, it's not in the band and, uh, and I don't want to do that. And this is why you have, you know, the little girl with her, with her hands on her ear, screaming, you know, signifying quiet and riot. Uh, but there's no, there's even, even the logo was, uh, was a different uh, logo than we had used in the past. And that was really out of respect for, 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 for my friendship, for my friendship with Kevin, as strained as it was at the time. Because of course, with all things Quiet Riot, uh, you know, I was held responsible. It was my fault that that Kevin had been fired, which is which is ridiculous.
1: Right, right. and if you look at the uh, the lettering, it sort of has a a look of, of of Yes albums. It has that sort of font of a Yes album to it. Um, speaking of different singers, uh, Black Sabbath back in the day they had Ian Gillan come in. They do the Born Again tour. Quiet Riot is part of that tour. Um, What was that experience like? Because on one hand, you're going out with Black Sabbath, but on the other hand, you're not going out with Black Sabbath in a a manner of speaking, but still an exciting moment. For for Quiet Riot to be on this tour, I would imagine.
3: Yeah, it was it was great. My perspective on it is, um, it, I didn't I didn't have you know I don't carry that thing around of you know well this is not the original singer and this is not the original drummer. Um, you know they were they were playing the songs and I thought they were doing a great job on it. But what I was excited about is that Quiet Riot, by and large, um, at that point was was looked at more like a hard pop band uh than a than than uh a heavy metal band, and so I think that it was a good marriage in that it exposed uh, choir riot to to a hardcore me, uh, metal male audience. Uh, and and I think also Black Sabbath benefited because I think this is the first time girls at their concerts. So I thought it was good. Um, it was uh, it was uh, a strange situation because we only had, I measured it, we only had 13 inches of room from the front of my bass drum to the edge of the stage for, for Kevin. Uh, to parade uh, and ply his wares, uh, even though there was enough room backstage for the for the Black Sabbath crew to play soccer. So I, I found that to be interesting. Uh, it was also interesting that when we were in Rockford, Illinois, uh, you know, you get the you get the numbers for Billboard a week before they're published, and uh, and at that show we found out that mental Health was going to be number one the following week um and black sabbath were very gracious they brought in a case of champagne which we uh we polished off in no time at all
1: great memories on that um let me just move around here before we we wrap up uh, wasp uh you spent some time with wasp headless children and all that um talk to me a little bit about that that part of your career and what it was like to go and not necessarily be the boss in the band um how do you want to characterize it? Were you just sort of a hired gun or were you in a partnership with with blackie or uh and and you know musically it's different than what quiet riot does What was that like for you that experience well that
3: was uh that whole thing was an interesting situation. What happened is when Blackie was working on on the live wasp album uh which was the 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 album that came out just before uh we did the Headless Children record together. Right. Um, he was having some serious issues with, with the drum seat, so to speak in that situation. And he asked me if I would, if I would record the next record and join the band. Um, I explained to him that I was in the middle at that point of recording the fourth Choir Riot record, um, really had to concentrate on, uh, on meeting those commitments and making the best record I could, uh, with Choir Riot i said if you cannot find a drummer um i would more than happy to record the record but i'm not going to be able to tour so um he auditioned a number of people and he wasn't happy with any of them so he uh he came back to me and he said listen would you do the record and i said fine and i was essentially recording the the qr4 record and the headless children record at the same time literally you know recording one studio during the day recording with blackie at night recording with Blackie on weekends you know that kind of situation um, and I had known Blackie for, for, for many, many years. We had, we had worked together, uh, but I, I had known for many, many years and we always got along. It's a, like a New York thing. Uh, and I, and I've always liked them, you know? Um, so it was, it was an easy process for me. There's a lot of sides to my plane above and beyond what I do with quiet riot, which I love what I do with quiet riot, but there's a lot of other things that I do too. So Stepping into into the heavy metal Wasp world was was uh, a comfortable fit for me. It was very, very easy. So I finished, you know, I finished both the QR record and I finished the Headless Children record and I go out on the road with uh with uh choir riot uh to go play in Japan. Everything always something happens when all Choir Japan. Riot plays Japan. Right. Yeah. So so we're over in Japan and and, you know, it's choir ride has has, you know, run down to the end of the line at that point, as far as I was concerned. And I told the band um, while we were in Japan that as soon as we were done with the last date in Tokyo at the Sun Plaza, that I was going to put um, choir ride on hold indefinitely. Um, and and I had I hadn't even thought about WASP at that point. I was just thinking, OK. We're going to finish in Japan. I'm going to go back to L.A. and I'm going to regroup and see what I'm going to do with my own career. Um, somehow Blackie got word because he keeps his ear to the ground very firmly. Um, somehow he got word that uh, that you know Kauai Rai was going to um, and uh, and he called me up uh, and he wanted to know what was going on and I told him and I said I'm playing I'm playing uh, um, Sun Plaza Tokyo tomorrow. And then everybody's going back to L.A. And he goes, I'll call you back. And he called me back about a half hour later. Um, and he said I was supposed to go, meaning he himself, was supposed to go to Japan with Chris Holmes to do press for the Headless Children Tour. He said uh, if I wanted to do the tour, you know, we'd negotiate the deal. And uh, he wanted me to stay in Japan for another week. Chris would come out and Chris and I would do press for Wasp while he went to uh, the U.K. And, uh, and started doing press for the record over in Europe. Um, and so we, we knocked out the deal. Uh, fortunately we had the same attorney at the time. Uh, so once we got the conflict of interest uh, clauses out of the way, uh, the deal was pretty easy to come up with. And, uh, and I stayed in Japan. I mean, I remember being in the, in the lobby at the, uh, Tokyo Hilton waving goodbye to, to the remnants of quiet ride and then being picked up, uh, by somebody, <laughs> the um, Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm an animal lover, and you have to put up with the good and the bad. Um, so as I wave goodbye to uh, to Quiet Riot, um, I get picked up uh, at the Tokyo Hilton by a representative from, uh, I think it was EMI Japan or something like that, and uh, he checks me into the Rapongi Prince Hotel, and I find myself doing press for Wasp a week after I did press for Quiet Riot with all the same press people. God, that so must that was uh, that must have that was been fascinating.
1: Uh, must have been somewhat uh, of a moment in your life um i know that we're i'm
3: resilient (laughs) if nothing else
1: (laughs) oh yeah that is that is definitely for sure and and in fact the band itself quiet riot is uh, resilient they've they've you've come you've gone you've come you've gone and it keeps going and and thank god for that but let me let me move over here because before we run out of time to blackthorn which of course involves bob Kulick, who is bruce Kulick's brother Mm -hmm. who of course was in kiss and graham bonnet who of course has done alcatraz and rainbow um the album afterlife uh came out didn't get a lot of uh heat but it's it's a great record uh talk to me about that involvement because i've interviewed graham uh, bonnet twice and i've asked him about blackthorn and he seems less than enthused or at least my perception is that he's less than enthused about the album but yet if you put on the album kicks ass i mean it's a so, it's a solid album. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, what was that project like for you?
3: I, you know, I think that Blackthorn Afterlife record is a phenomenal record. I think mm-hmm. I think the songs are, are well crafted. Um, I really liked my drumming participation on it. Um, I got to work with Chuck Wright again on bass which uh, which is uh, again a comfortable fit for me. Um, I knew Bob, uh, this was the, I believe this was the first time I had worked with Bob, um, but I knew of him and, and I know him to be a great songwriter and I know him to be a great guitarist, uh, a lot better than uh, he's given credit for. Uh, Jimmy Waldo had done the keyboards on the fourth Choir Ride record, so I already knew him. Uh, so pretty much, you know, I didn't know Bob, I had never met Graham before, but you know, I've always been a Graham bonnet fan. So I was excited about that. Um, I understand, you know, why Graham feels the way he does, because I see both sides of the equation. Um, Graham has a certain vocal style that you hear on everything he's done. Um, and Bob Kulick was aware of that, but Bob also wanted to make a, a, commercial yet a heavy record so he wanted to to have graham sing in a different style i.e he wanted to pull um uh, a completely different um vocal style that graham had done because graham was capable of doing it uh i don't think that that graham um, um liked having to do that i don't think he appreciated where Bob was coming from and and fair enough I mean you know he's he's his own person he's his own singer um, so I I get both both sides of the equation I would hope that that you know maybe if not publicly but uh, privately uh, Graham really loves the record because he did an incredible job on that record, I mean, I you know I hear his singing on that as like blood curdling is just great. Um, and again, Bob Bob played some amazing guitar on it. The songs were well crafted. Uh, it was an easy record for me to do. Uh, um, I cut the entire record in in two sessions, uh, two back to back sessions. Yeah. Um, so, but I was just a side man. I had nothing. I had nothing to. I had nothing to do uh, with the record. I don't. Uh, you know, my photo doesn't appear on it. Uh, just like my photo didn't appear on the on the Headless Children because that would have been uh, a conflict of interest with my deal because I was still on the contract to, to CBS at the time. So that's another record where my face
0: is not there.
1: Yeah, and then uh, we'll finish on this one. One of the most revered albums that, that you've been a part of is the Use Thrall album from um, 82, which, of course, Andy Johns produced, um, the legendary uh, Andy Johns. Um, what was that album like for you? Because that that one just it, it's sort of unfortunate that you, that they just made one, right? Yeah, it, you know, it was uh,
3: it was an interesting situation. There were there were a lot of politics uh, going around. Um, uh, you know, from my understanding is that that Glenn and Pat auditioned like a hundred some odd drummers. Um, I got three callbacks, <clears throat> and I was uh, I was thrilled to do it because uh, I have been a a, a huge Glenn Hughes fan since 1972 when I first heard the Trapeze record. Uh, You're the music with just the band. So he, you know, he was one of uh, one of my favorite singers, and I was aware of, uh, of Pat Thrall because of his association with Pat Travers, but more so with uh, Automatic Man and Stomu Yamashita uh, record that he did. Um, so I was I was thrilled. That was the new guy. I hadn't I hadn't really done uh, much in the business at that point. Uh, it was thousand nine hundred and eighty two which was a banner year for me because we recorded Metal health. Uh, I recorded the Hughes Thor record and I also recorded um, uh, with Billy idol so uh, but I was the new guy, so I was just happy to be there and uh, and but you know I was just uh, I was just uh, another hired person
1: yeah but it, it it turned out great, and of course, uh, Glenn and uh, kevin were were great great friends that's that 's one thing that we remember uh frankie always a pleasure
3: i introduced so uh, i introduced those two nutcases
1: <laughs> yeah and and by the way that's how i got to know glenn uh, glenn Hughes because uh kevin introduced me to glenn so they they had this this bond uh that developed i guess thanks to you and uh, yeah just uh you know all around greatness and of course pat travers um uh, since you mentioned him uh canadian connection so there you go uh frankie always a pleasure yeah he's great Oh yeah, he he's great. He just played here the uh, Ottawa's Blues Fest in front of forty thousand people and uh guy still got it man, he's still got it. What a what a Well talent. good
3: things happen to good people. Yeah, good things happen to good people. I'm glad he's doing I'm glad he's doing those level gigs when uh when they present themselves. He's uh he's a great guitarist, he's a really, really nice guy. So nothing nothing but love for uh, Pat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Frankie, always a pleasure and uh very much looking forward to The next new Quiet Riot album and, of course, the next Quiet Riot show that I get to go to and uh, just always a pleasure.
3: Well, I've always appreciated your friendship, your honesty, your candor, and, uh, and, you know, thanks for taking the time, man. I really, really, really do appreciate it. You're a uh, your stand-up guy, I always have and always will be, and uh, I am I want to apologize again for my dogs, uh, Griffin McNasty and, uh, and uh, Blue Eyes Levi, but, you know, I'm, I'm pet-sitting with my boys today.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've got mine sitting here, but though he's... he's- Seems to be totally out. <laughs> I, think I, tu- I think I tuckered him out, but anyway, there we go. Uh, and uh, there we go. We're done. C'est beau. Thank you very All much. All right, bye, my, fr- bye, Mer- my friend. Thank you so much. Merci, merci. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. And I do apologize for the few audio glitches uh, during the interview, but that sometimes is the nature of doing skype interviews and so on and so forth but uh, there you go please uh, make sure to check me out on twitter at mitch lafon m-i-t-c-h-l-a-f-o-n and with that cheers
0: Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review and share.
1: President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders, and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue, repair, and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair, but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet.
0: I'm Rita Foley.